Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So I want to start my sermon with another confession. It's been a bad week for me. (laughs) Is that we come here to the last Sunday of this season that we call Epiphany. And starting on Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent. And so on these kind of threshold moments, I often stop and just kind of look back and say, what have I learned through the last season? And I discovered kind of in myself, I'm like, I haven't been paying close enough attention to these Sundays. And you can understand why. I mean, and I suspect maybe some of this is true for you all as well. Like, we finish up Christmas, and all of us, you know, just the way our culture does it, like January is just this big letdown, right? Like, we're all really tired. I I pray you can understand why I might feel that way after the Christmas season. It's just a lot. But then the beginning of the year comes, you know, and just in church life, you know, I've got a new consistory to break in. I've got a new president to get to know and to work with. I've got, um, I've got a congregational meeting to do. I've got children that I've got to deal with. You know, all these things kind of pile up. And so you'll understand if I tell you that Sunday morning sometimes can be at times a, Sam, just get through it this Sunday, all right? Chances are they won't remember what you said in three months anyway. Don't worry too much about it. <laughs> And so I found myself going, wait a second. And so here, I'm like, wait a second. What have we done over the last couple of weeks? And I was really moved about these stories that we have read and this season that is so easy to overlook because of sort of that world weariness that we might bring to the beginning of the year. And I think there's some value in stepping back and looking at this. So if I'm preaching to anyone this morning, I'm preaching to myself. But this season has contained a remarkable set of stories that are supposed to do a certain thing. The church doesn't hand us these, these, excuse me, the church doesn't hand us this season and then say, just get through it. It wants us to know something. Our ancestors learned something through the season that we call epiphany. It is intended to grow our love and our wonder for Christ. The word epiphany itself means a manifestation of a divine being, a moment of revelation. And on the backside of Christmas, it wants us to see this person, Jesus, for who he is. And we looked at epiphany and baptism, his presentation in the temple, him calling disciples, these healing miracles. We've talked about them all. And in all of this, the story is, friends, the kingdom is here. The claim of our entire faith is that in Christ, the kingdom of God is fully and finally made manifest here on earth. And it shows itself in story after story of lives forever changed by the presence of Christ and people's proximity to him. There is a power and a purpose to Christ unlike anything the world has ever seen. The theological word we use for these stories, these manifestations of God, sometimes we use epiphany. Another word is theophany, a visible manifestation of God to us. So when we wonder, what is God like? What is God like and who gets to tell us what God is like? Our faith says Jesus is what God is like. 
That is the answer. The church doesn't get to tell us what, what God is like. Other people don't get to tell us what God is like. Our conviction is that Jesus and Jesus alone tells us what God is like. And in these stories of epiphany, we see that Christ is Lord of the nations. That's what the, that's what the wise men coming to the manger was all about. We see that Christ is the Messiah. That's what the presentation in the temple was all about. He's the fulfillment of Israel's deepest longings. Christ is our rabbi to whom we are to listen and to imitate. We are to apprentice ourselves to him. Christ is, the, <clears throat> excuse me, Christ is the compassionate healer. And so in all of this, Jesus crawls up into his first pulpit and he says to all of us, repent and believe the good news. Something new is here. Story after story of the power and intention of God come to earth. And if we listened carefully, which I need to do a better job of, but if we listen to it carefully, we cannot help wonder at Christ, be drawn to him, and to be curious about what it would look like if his ways were made real in my life and in the life of the world. And the call to each and every one of his disciples is exactly that call. Come and follow me. Watch and learn. Observe what I do, and then do as I do. And so lest I miss this entire season, we have one more theophany. One more revelation to deal with today. This one, perhaps, the pinnacle of them all. This one, perhaps, is the turning point of all the Gospels. And it is called the Transfiguration. And as this last Sunday in Epiphany begins to turn us from Epiphany to Lent, so the Transfiguration is intended to change sort of the way we think about Jesus from what he was beforehand to where he is headed after this story. This is a turning point. It is a fulcrum, a pivot point of our faith. Up to this point, as we just said, everything in the gospel has been building. People are getting fired up. His crowds are growing. Everyone seems to be getting this. People are being fed. People are being healed. Good news is going out. People are becoming emotionally and spiritually connected to him. This is real. And then Jesus says, which we didn't read today, but is the, is the critical point of all this. Jesus tells his apostles, the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now the secret of our faith is that is still good news. But you can understand why it would not have been heard as such. They're looking at him going, Jesus, we got a movement building. What are you, what are you even talking about? And for us, even though we know how this story ends, it is a long journey to the cross from here. But Jesus isn't going to let his companions, nor will he let us, stumble in the dark all by ourselves. And so he takes Peter and James and John, his three guys, his three closest friends, and he takes them up on a mountain which tradition tells us, our reading today doesn't, but other readings will tell us, is Mount Tabor. And suddenly it tells us they get to the peak of the mountain and it tells us that he was transfigured. You're like, Sam, what was that like? I don't know. I'm not sure that Mark does either. Mark does the best he can to describe it. The Greek term ref reminds us of the term of metamorphosis. If you think about a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, it's a complete and utter transformation in the person. 
And it tells us as his face shone with light and his clothes were dazzling white. And I love that little sort of comment, such as no one has ever been able to bleach clothes. I just thought that kind of, that made me laugh. And in this moment, Jesus is fully revealed for who he is in a way far beyond his healings, far beyond his teaching, far beyond all the other things we've read about. In this moment, we get a full reckoning of who exactly Jesus is. Now, if you remember back at Christmas time, we sing a hymn. Sometimes we skip over this verse, but we sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. My choir's all going like this. Thank you. I turn for my amens to the choir when I'm doing hymns. And it's true. That line is absolutely true. When Jesus was born, the fullness of deity dwelled in him. But you understand there's a sense in which it was veiled. Even it tells us that Mary wondered at him. She had heard the message from the angel, but still wonders at who this child is. And if you had lived in that time and you experienced Jesus... You would not have experienced God. You would have experienced a Galilean carpenter who had a certain charisma about him and who spoke. It was just different. He just saw the world in a different way. But at Mount Tabor, the veil is removed. Or maybe we should say that the glory finally and fully shows through the veil. His face shines, his clothes are white. The full glory of deity is shining out from him. And these three apostles get to see with their own eyes who Jesus really is. What they had thought about him up to that point was many and varied. You know, we, I would love to ask them, like, who did you think this guy was as you're following him around? You know, and, and Peter has made his confession, but we're still not sure that Peter understands the full weight of the confession that he has made. But now they see him fully. And we describe him, and the church describes him later, fully on Mount Tabor as God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, of one substance with God the Father. Uncreated, the uncreated light of God shining forth in this person of Jesus. And the witness is this. Jesus is the light of God illuminating the darkness of humanity. And in this way, it is a moment of decision for the disciple. Is this light too much that we turn away? Or do we endure this brilliance and give ourselves more fully to the truth that is Christ? Jesus does not shrink. Jesus does not minimize his brilliance just so that it will be more accommodating for us. Here on Tabor, Christ says, here I am. And we see what his kingdom and his creation will, will be all about. And it is decision time for the apostles. And that is what Lent is about, reorienting and rethinking our entire lives in light of the full revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Now that Lenten question is illuminating for the other detail of this passage. <clears throat> Because it's not just the apostles and Jesus there, right? It's a couple of guests who, if you were watching a television show about this, you'd be like, where did these guys come from? We haven't seen these guys since season one. But it's two guys, Moses and Elijah, show up there as well. These towering figures of the Hebrew scriptures, 
you might argue, the two most important people in all what we call the Old Testament. Moses is the one who had gone up on Sinai into the very presence of God and received the law of God. He's the one who had stared into the burning bush and had heard the voice of God call him to his vocation and purpose. Elijah, similarly, was the paradigmatic prophet. He was the example of what all the prophets were to be, who called his people back to covenant faithfulness with God and with one another, who did battle with the idols of their pagan neighbors and spoke truth to power to their own unjust kings. He had words for the outsiders and he had words for the insiders. And he was the one who was taken up into heaven, you remember this, by a chariot of fire. Moses and Elijah both know a little bit about what it's like to be in the full presence of God. And together, they represent the law and the prophets. And if you put the law and the prophets together, they answer Israel's most fundamental question. How do we live as a holy and just people in the light of God? That's what the Old Testament is all about. A people called by God trying to figure out how to live holy and set apart and live justly in light of what they know God to be. And the law and the prophets at that time were that revelation. How do we know what God is like? We have the law. How do we know what God is like? We have the prophets. But there's a sense in which even then, Israel was still awaiting a fuller revelation. And I submit, and our scriptures submit, that this fuller revelation finds itself in Jesus. What are you talking about, Sam? Well, imagine, if you will, imagine you come into this sanctuary. We all like worship in here, right? It's a pretty place to worship. It's a special place. But imagine you come into this sanctuary on the darkest night of the year, and you are provided with nothing more than a candle, okay? That would be special, yes, candlelight in here. That would be a really, really special thing. But if you had never been in here, you could use the candle to make sense of where you were. I mean, you'd bang your shin on a pew once or twice before you finally figured out there's a whole lot of pews here, all right? And you'd watch yourself. You'd, fi- you'd figure this out eventually. You'd figure out, oh, these, this glass is colored. You would, you would get a picture of what this place is like. You would understand its features and its contours. You would kind of get its vibe. You're like, okay, I kind of understand where I'm at and the beauty of it. But you would never understand the beauty of this place that we worship in until the sun rose and the sun came through the windows and illuminated the whole place at the same time. Yes? You can't understand it until you can see it all. Not by the light of a candle, but by the light of the sun. What Moses and Elijah were illuminating with a candle, Jesus fully illumines by himself. Jesus' face shines. His clothes are dazzling. Jesus is the word made flesh. And here on Tabor, the law and the prophets have completed their task and have pointed to Christ And it is he, the one who will be crowned with a crown of thorns, who will bring about a kingdom of holiness and justice. And in Christ, we can see the whole plan finally laid bare before us all. But Peter misreads it. And this is where you're just like, oh, Pete, come on. Like, Pete, can you get this right once? I'm so glad he's here because I would have done this. 
Peter understandably sees all this going on, and he decides that where he is is a good place to stay. And so he decides, he comes up with this idea, and he's so wonderful this way. He's like, I'm in a moment, got to figure out something to do or say. Like, some of us are not comfortable with just silence. Pete is not comfortable with silence. He's like, got to say something, come up with an idea. So he's like, guys, I got a plan. Let's build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the word he uses for tent, for my biblical nerds in here, which I am one, is not just let's create a dwelling place, but let's create a tabernacle, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Let's put up three of them. God dwells here, God dwells here, God dwells here. And he says, let's just hang out here. Peter, and you're like, you might say, what's wrong with that? Sounds like a very wonderful thing to do. Fellas, we're going to provide you some housing. No, Peter treats them as equals. Jesus, equal to Moses, equal to Elijah. Same message, right? Same everything. These giants in the faith. But he is rebuked gently, lovingly, but Peter is rebuked in this by the very voice of God who says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And when they finally come to, Moses and Elijah are gone. And what is left? Christ himself. The imagery is clear. Everything we longed for in the prophets and in the law, everything we've been looking for finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so if Moses says, and Moses does say this, Moses says to practice capital punishment, to stone adulterers and other sinners, God still says to us, listen to Jesus, and Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Elijah had called down fire from heaven to burn up his enemies and to burn up the other gods and to burn up their priests, and, but God still says in this moment, listen to Jesus, and Jesus says, love your enemies. Don't you see? The Old Testament witness, which is what testament means, witness, now points to Jesus. But it's tempting, isn't it? At the moment when the story finally turns to the cross, it's and it's tempting in our lives to want to turn from this dazzling light of Christ and to turn back to the candles, to turn back to the flickers of truth, the suggestions of holiness and justice. It's easier to just get a little bit of revelation rather than the whole thing. In other words, we often make the mistake that Peter did. We say, well, I want Jesus and this. I want Jesus and because we suspect that Jesus is actually not enough. Peter wanted Jesus and the law. Peter wanted Jesus and the prophet speaking truth to power, calling down fire upon his enemies. But Jesus will not give him that. And in the same way, friends, I will say, I think the temptation of the church in our modern age, the thing that has watered down our witness the most, I will contend is that we continue to want to lean back towards Jesus and something else. And of all of us, we'll point to other people and say, that's what they're doing. 
Jesus and tradition, Jesus and capitalism, Jesus and freedom, Jesus and country, Jesus and family, Jesus and activism, Jesus and whatever, 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 whatever your thing is. But the truth, of, but the truth is Christ, where everything is laid bare before him. We mean well when we want to do Jesus and, but I'm here to tell you, if we link anything else up with Jesus, it will deliver none of what we hope for. Christ is the hope of the world. And when we step fully into the light of Christ, transfigured before us, everything else fades and his glory shines and we see the entirety of God's good purposes for the world. And so that is what is left for us here on this last Sunday of Epiphany. We've made the arguments of who Jesus is. And here, standing on the threshold of Lent, this 40 days of wilderness to which we will go, the question is, will you look fully into the face of Jesus? Because here we head to the cross. It was way easier these last couple of weeks. It's about to get a lot harder. Because in the cross we'll go, this doesn't look right. This is not what glory is. This is not what God is. Except it is. And so my encouragement to us all is this Lent, give up chocolate and beer if you want, but who kind of cares? If that's good for you, great. I got things in my own life I just need to get up give up because it's good for me. But in this Lent, step into the light of Jesus Christ. It's a lot, to be sure. But the one who shines like a thousand suns loves you more than you know. And he will not leave you as you are, but will transform you into the thing that he has always meant you to be. There's a transfiguration, so to speak, a metamorphosis of ourselves that comes to the disciples of Jesus Christ who look full into his face. And if we sit with him, his face will burn away. Yes, it will burn, but it will burn away all the junk, all the stubble, all the hay, all the useless things that we carry around in our lives and turn us into the creation that he has always intended us to be because he's turning the whole creation into the thing that he intends it to be. And so I leave you with the words of the hymn writer and I thought of this this morning, and we'd have sung it if it was in the hymnal, but it's not. Rob would have gotten upset with me because I'd have changed the lyrics on him. But I want you to hear an old hymn that I remember singing. Let it be my call to you, God's call to us, as we head off into Lent. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. St. Mary's. So I know that's not the way we always start a video, but I wanted to give you a little taste of how I go about preparing for Ash Wednesday. And so I'm out here on the front porch of the church, which is where I like to do it. It's a good place for prayer here and a good concrete floor that I can light a fire on. And so inside of a can, we put last year's palms, which are a symbol of joy and celebration. And we burn them, a symbol of the temporality of our lives and sort of the quickness with which we are here and then we are gone. But then we'll, I'll mix those 
ashes, not with water. If anybody t does it with water, that creates lie. That's bad. No, we'll mix them with oil, which is a symbol of healing, a symbol of abundance and joy. And it's a reminder that Lent is not this black, dark season where we talk about how terrible we are. It's actually a hopeful season. It is about our hearts understanding our temporality and our mortality and committing ourselves more fully to the way of the cross, which is why we will make the sign of the cross on our foreheads. Lent is the way of the cross. It's the way of sacrifice and love, which leads to love and glory. But here's what I've noticed about Ash Wednesday over the years. And Ash Wednesday is not a particularly popular service. I get it. But what I've discovered about those who do come is that those who make much of Jesus make much of their sin. Let's say it again. The people who love Jesus seem to care more about their sin. Why is this? I think it has something to do with what we talked about a couple weeks ago in this space. We say, follow the eyes. The more we look into the face of Jesus, the more we come to know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so the more that we look into the face of the truth, the more we realize how shaped we are by lies. The more we look into the face of his life, the more we realize how much we are surrounded by and shoulder death in so many ways. The longer we look at his love and sacrifice, the more we accept and come to understand our own hard-heartedness. To look at Jesus in love and wonder means we talk about our sin, not about self-flagellation and how terrible we are. No, the more we look into the face of Jesus, the more we become aware of how far we fall short. Not as a condemnation, but as an expression of truth. And we do this liturgically. We celebrate a transfiguration on Sunday. We see the full divinity of Christ on display. And then immediately following, just a couple days later, we do Ash Wednesday, which is when my full humanity is on display. And my humanity, the ashenness of my humanity, falls so far short of the glory and the divinity of Christ. That's why people who love Jesus care about their sin. And so reflecting on this, the great Orthodox priest, Alexander Schmemon, wrote this. He said, the purpose of Lent is not to force on us a few formal obligations, please, but to soften our heart so that it may open itself to the realities of the Spirit, to experience the hidden thirst and longing for communion with God. We are not trying to get our souls to hunger and thirst for God. Our souls already do that. Lent is about discovering that and discovering how much God wants to work inside of that truth. And so now to soften our hearts takes effort. It doesn't come easy because our thought patterns, our way of life, our distracted lives, all of these things are well entrenched and they are well practiced. It takes effort and struggle to push through that, to push through sort of all of the distractions and all of the habits, to set that aside so we can glimpse, again, the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. So it is not our fasts that make us whole. It is not the things that we give up that bring us closer to God. No, the fasts open up space for us to encounter Jesus, and then it is Jesus who does the work in us. And so Ash Wednesday then 
is for those who want to make much of Jesus. It is for those who want to follow Jesus more. And then in light of that, we come to understand that our works are, are but ashes and that our future will always come to death. But we lean into the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ all the more so that we know that it is in Christ that we are being saved, in Christ we are being redeemed, and in Christ one day we will be raised. And so you are invited to Ash Wednesday service, not to tell me how terrible you are or to hear me tell you how terrible I am, so that we might make much of Jesus. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 2, Come, let us walk, not in the darkness of our sins, but rather in the light of the Lord. I hope to see you on Wednesday. We'll be here 7.30 for morning prayer, 7 o'clock in the evening for a more traditional Ash Wednesday service, imposition of ashes at both services. And we look forward to making much of Jesus with you on Wednesday. Until then, peace and good, y'all.